This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Kelsey Finney is featured in this episode as part of the SMS T2 team. She spends much of her time, as you would expect, training, resting, and refueling. Yet she is also deeply engaged in Parkinson's disease advocacy through her journalism work with the Davis Finney Foundation. She's produced a great podcast series titled The Parkinson's Podcast. At 25 years old, Finney is healing up from a labrum tear in her shoulder currently, and we connected with her last week over the phone in her hometown of Boulder, Colorado. We, of course, discussed her skiing and also much of her good work. So let's go with the vital stats. You are in Boulder, Colorado, home. Yep. And you are how old? 25. Young. <laughs> it's young. And um, why are you not on snow right now? What's the word on the street? <laughs> um, I had a, kind of a weird fall at spring series in the sprint uh, semifinal. It was a weird snow day. A couple other people actually had this same issue where like my ski tip daggered into the snow and sort of stopped me dead. And I, yeah, fell with my arm open. Didn't really think it was a big deal, but turns out I tore my labrum. So, um, okay. in my shoulder. And how bad is that? I don't really know. I mean, for me, it definitely means that I have to do some alternative training right now and big emphasis on PT, but I was lucky in that I didn't dislocate my shoulder when I fell and the stability of my shoulder is fine. So it's kind of hard to know right now. Basically I'm doing PT every day and then, um, as I build up doing that, I'll have a better picture of if it's kind of a no big deal thing that I can, ski with no problem or if I'm going to have to do some more stuff. But weirdly enough, it's a very common climbing injury. So the only information I've really found on other athletes having this besides baseball, softball players is, uh, is climbing, but it seems like some people get surgery. Some people don't, but oftentimes you can rebound from Gotcha. Scenario. And yeah. so what, like from a climbing perspective, like what would be their issues? I mean, I'm guessing like reaching up above their head might be problematic or is that not the case? Yeah. So it's, yeah, for me, it's like, um, yeah, reaching up above my head. So in climbing, that would obviously be difficult. And then the other thing is sort of, you know, when you're in the front car seat and you reach back to the back seat to get something like that sort of motion where you're at the yeah. back end reach of your shoulder. That's yep. um, difficult for me as well right now. So it's a good thing you're not a parent. True. I know. I don't have to be strapping any toddlers down or No, or like whatever. reaching reaching back to like pick up a binky or yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yes, it okay. is good. <laughs> um, well, it's just, you know, just a thought. You grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and you, you know, you have a name that is kind of synonymous with excellence in the cycling community. 
Are, are you like just a Finney or are you a hyphenated Carpenter Finney? I do have the middle name of Carpenter. So I've got, I've got both, but it's not hyphenated as a last name. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So, um, but in a place like Boulder where it's like cycling royalty, when you cruise out to left-hand Canyon on a Saturday morning, you're like, Oh, there's so-and-so and there's so-and-so. This might be like a completely non sequitur type interview, but just go with okay. it. <laughs> um, but like what, you know, you're a pro athlete yourself now, but I'm kind of curious growing up in a place like Boulder, that's kind of a bubble. And then within the cycling community, it's, it's another bubble. Um, you know, what was that like for you and how did your parents try and kind of insulate you from that? I suppose. I mean, when we were little, it didn't seem like a huge deal. My parents were both very satisfied, I'd say, in their athletic careers. And so all they really wanted from Taylor and I was that we enjoyed being outside and, um, you know, could experience the power of sport and how much confidence you can get from it and just sort of that healthy lifestyle. So, I mean, we would help out at their bike camps. They had a bike camp business that ran over 25 years that started more as like a skills um, bike camp in Colorado. And then as they got older and as their clientele changed, it became more like bike touring in Italy um, in particular. So we went to a lot of those and got to help out, which was cool. But um, I wouldn't say that I really even noticed (laughs) as a young kid. I think is good that there was any sort of pressure or, um, yeah, anything with that. Uh, as we got older, when Taylor, when my older brother Taylor started to race and was kind of like instantly, seemingly instantly really good. I mean, I think two years after he started racing, he won junior worlds (laughs) and then, you know, made the Olympics his senior right after his senior year of high school. That was when I started to feel that a little bit more, sort of the cycling legacy, if you will, and a little bit of that pressure, at least from, if not from my family, then just from the outside, from the way that people write about it in media um, and stuff like that. But I guess... Unfortunately, there's not a huge, especially for younger girls, racing circuit for cycling in the U.S., or there especially wasn't when I was, you know, over 10 years ago now when I was looking into that kind of stuff. And what I found in Nordic skiing was a pretty big community of other like-minded athletes and humans And so, yeah, even though I sort of went out of the family uh, tradition to Nordic ski instead of bike, it did seem sort of like the winter sport equivalent in some ways. (laughs) And a lot of it was based on the community and support systems I found. I don't know if that answers your question directly, but. Sure. Um, And I think your dad, did your dad dabble in Nordic skiing a bit? I forget. He did. So. His kind of his two loves when he was in high school were biking and cross country skiing, and then he ended up choosing biking because there were 
they just race so much more or their race season is so much longer and he mostly loved to race. <laughs> and then he kind of, yeah, came back to Nordic after his bike career or as his bike career was sort of ending. And yeah, so he's always like loved Nordic skiing, definitely instilled that love in me, which was cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so for people who may not know, I should backtrack just slightly. You're, you're, and I come at this from just a kind of, uh, like my brother was like a Kool-Aid drinker cyclist way back in the day. And so your parents were both very common sites in the house, like old Velo news, or like we'd turn on, you know, certainly watching the Olympics or, you know, watching the tour. So it was like very common to talk about, you know, Connie Carpenter or your dad. Um, so they are both former professional athletes, uh, cyclists. And I don't want this podcast to be about them, but I'm just trying to <laughs> set the framework for people who may not know. Did I describe that properly? Yes. Well, technically, fun fact, my mom was never a professional because she uh, quit right after the Olympics and back in the 80s was, you still had to be amateur, you still had to have amateur yeah. status to be in the Olympics. So my parents, yeah, both competed in the 84 Olympics in LA and, um, my mother won <laughs> the first women's road race. And my dad was, uh, his team was third in the team time trial. Um, and he was fifth in the road race, but yeah, my dad went on to turn pro and go ride, you know, like the tour de France and everything. And my mom, um, finished her career after that and went back to school to get her master's in exercise okay. science. And then you have a brother yeah. who is mostly known as an amazing artist, but also a professional cyclist on the side. Yeah. I love that he's known as an amazing artist now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, but yes, also, uh, yeah, he's four years older than me, but a three time Olympian already. Oh, really? The, Ripe age of 28. So, gosh, okay. There's <laughs> yeah. some pressure. Um, so, okay. So, here's a question relating to like being a, a sibling, a younger sibling, a pro professional athlete who, you know, has received a ton of media attention, you know, from the cycling press and, you know, has had, is, was, you know, came on strong, obviously, as like, I think a, junior or senior in high school, all of a sudden I was living in Boulder at the time. And it was like, you know, who's the tall guy who's just killing everybody on the bike in town. Um, and you know, has had a, an astounding professional career, um, with some pretty horrific, you know, crashes thrown in there. Um, but what have you learned watching him from a distance and how to navigate, the ups and downs of sport, you know, I, I like to think it's very, it's a rare athlete in Nordic skiing that is continually a podium skier. And most people's experience is up and down and, you know, you have to have that sort of psychological wherewithal to kind of stick with it. Um, so I'm kind of curious what you may have learned from watching his career so far. Yeah, I think that, as a younger sibling initially was sort of the meteoric rise that he experienced in the first couple of years. I had a, I had a skewed version of 
how sport worked and what kind of levels people usually get to or don't get to. So initially I just, he was kind of like a god of an older brother, right? Like starts biking, is just crushing it, like goes to the Olympics, is so much success so quickly. Um, And that set up some pretty high standards and false expectations for me in my own athletic career, uh, which didn't follow the same trajectory. But I think what I then learned from him was actually, maybe I was, I was in college. I was at Middlebury at this point and I went to see him in, I can't remember if it was the stage of the tour of Poland or the Giro, but it was in Italy. It finished in Italy and, uh, he, it was a mountain stage and he was like last place. (laughs) And, you know, he came across and was like, Oh God, that was so hard. Like, you know, but fun. We had this great lunch and I had this realization, like I considered and still consider my brother to be one of the best cyclists in the world. And yet he can get last place in a race, you know, like it's not, if he wins one big race a year, that's, a huge accomplishment or even, you know, gets within winning. And so I think that was sort of humbling and inspiring in a different way to realize that you can be amazing. And also there are other people who are amazing at different things. And so, um, that was important for me. And then, I mean, the way Taylor and I became a lot closer, one of the silver linings of his, massive crash breaking his leg in 2014 was that he ended up home that whole summer and um I was supposed to be training with the training group out in Truckee but came back to visit Taylor and just felt like I wanted to be home and kind of help him in his journey and be able to I mean I can train at home too so we went on a bunch of bike rides together when he was coming back from that and to see that whole process of someone really at the top of their game having something like that happen and then the way that he rebounded from that and really discovered like different sides of himself, discovered art, became really an incredible artist um, in the long run has been very inspirational to me as well that it's great to be an incredible athlete but and it's also probably more important to be a great human in the long run and the impact you have on other people far transcends your athletic results, I guess. When I first got serious about skiing and I'd seen how good my brother was, you know, I'm this 14-year-old kid who, when you're a first-year U14, like making JNs and getting top 10 there is is great. And I didn't think that was good enough. Like nothing was good enough compared to what my brother had done, even though it was, you know, my first year racing, like it was fine. Like I was having fun (laughs) and I got so, and you, I think it's easy, especially for kids when you get, when you fall in love with the sport to place your self-worth or self-value in your results or something. When in reality, that's, you know, I, Taylor and I have had conversations before where it's like your athletic, like his athletic career, my athletic career to him is probably one of the most important athletic careers that we've ever followed. And neither of us actually care 
how the other person does in a race. Like we want each other to succeed because we know how well, how hard we'd, we've worked and that it feels great to have a good race. But at the end of the day, like that changes nothing of the way that I see my brother. <laughs> um, so I think that's cool. And that was something I um, broke my back actually in high school and took a year off from racing. And when I came back to skiing, I was a much more well-rounded, like I'm here cause I love this and um, I love, you know, working towards something and the community and the feeling of ski racing. And it's not that if I win or get six, that changes like who I am <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> or get 30th or 60th or whatever it is. <laughs> well, how do you manage with, I mean, I, I, I fully get that and respect that and feel like, you know, that is yeah, I feel like that's like the healthiest perspective. And how do you then kind of manage how other people respond to you by results, even as an adult? I mean, you know, you're an adult and you still have to deal with the bottom line of being a professional sometimes is like, you know, people are, oh, well, you know, she came in fifth or she came in third or she didn't qualify. Um, you know, how do you manage that, that, that interface with people where they're still coming at it from the results perspective, if that makes sense? Right. I mean, it's hard to manage. I would say this year being on the world cup more or being, yeah, mostly in Europe this year compared to any other season that I've had, I struggled with that probably for the first time in my adult life, um, more so than I have in the past. And I actually haven't quite figured out how to navigate that. But I do think, I mean, that's where, you know, having teammates that are genuinely compassionate humans and being able to talk to people like Sophie Caldwell and Jesse Diggins, who like are my club teammates as well and have been over there a lot and have so much perspective um, really helps where it doesn't so much matter what maybe people on the outside think or when you have, it's nice to have people that you can bounce those feelings off of who've been there before. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it is hard. Like I had my best race of the season and scored points in Lati and, uh, moved up in the heats and you, you feel really excited and proud and you also sort of immediately feel disappointed that like, I was like, oh, but I didn't make the semifinals, <laughs> which helps, which helps you like get better. But also, yeah, it's a really hard line to find of being content with your progress and being able to celebrate those jumps up with, while still leaving room for improvement and like wanting more is I'm not exactly sure how to navigate that yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, that's such a hard, yeah, it's hard to, to still sort of grapple with that. Like, Oh, I didn't, yeah, yeah. Either I didn't score a top 30 or I didn't break a top 20, top 10, whatever the threshold might be, you know? Yeah. And I do think, I mean, it is a lot of athletes have said this and it's much easier said than done, but being able to allow yourself, a moment or a few minutes after the race, maybe before you look at the results to decide for yourself if you're like proud of that effort or not. 
because we, yeah, we place so much emphasis after the fact, after we've seen the result on how it went. Whereas like sometimes you have a genuinely great day and if you're not in it, then maybe it's okay to say like, all right, well I skied really well. And you know, 30 other people skied better than that, (laughs) which is okay. (laughs) Right. And they just happen to be 30 of the fastest people on the planet. Right. (laughs) Here's a question, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here. So you graduated Middlebury and then went out to be a member of the gold team for uh, the Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation gold team for at least two, two seasons. Is that right? Yeah. Two seasons. Okay. And then moved over to the SMS T2 team at Stratton. So, but I am curious, you know, when we look at two, two, the clubs, one, you know, you grew up sort of at altitude. I mean, you, it's 5,000 feet roughly in Boulder. You probably spent a lot of time up at Eldora, which <laughs> is high. Like, yeah, yeah. every time I, yeah, 9, it's feet. high. Yeah, super high and windy, amongst other things. That's <laughs> yeah, it can be great up there. It can be great. But I just remember like hauling my kid up 17th Avenue, whatever that big, long, straight uphill straight yeah, is. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, very grim with a kid in a polk. Anyhow, um, so like what, you know, one would think, oh, yeah, she's an altitude girl, you know, or an altitude athlete. She'll be fine at altitude. Um, but I'm kind of curious what you've learned about training in two very different environments when it comes to the environment. And when I mean speaking of environment, I'm speaking of like where you may or may not do intervals and rest, you know, from an altitude standpoint. Yeah. So I think what's interesting, I am happy that I've spent a lot of time at altitude and grew up at altitude because I think that that means like, I'm not afraid of racing at altitude, (laughs) which some people who haven't spent a lot of time and you get that a lot in particular with a lot of European racers, it's sort of like, Oh gosh, like this is going to (laughs) be so different or whatever. Um, so, and a lot of it's just kind of knowing the difference in feelings and the difference in how you race, But I think for me as – it's sort of comical that I grew up skiing at 9,000 feet as like a sprinter. (laughs) Um, And I – when I went to Middlebury, I could just – and, you know, Vermont has really great roads for roller skiing, which is kind of a funny thing to tout, but uh, definitely like nice roads for roller skiing. And – just that consistent good roller skiing in the off season, like in the build up to the season where you could actually just ski like a little bit faster. So like with a little bit better technique, I think made me a lot better of a skier. Um, even though altitude can really improve your fitness and there's definitely benefits to both, but Sun Valley was the right move for me right out of college. And it's a great program. The altitude did have in terms of like trying to make up that 1% to make it in the heats (laughs) on the world cup. Uh, as a sprinter, I do find that just sort of the level one training you can do is just a little bit faster. So you can work a little bit more on that technique. And then 
the harder training I feel like I can bounce back from a bit quicker. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big proponent of ski training at sea level, even though I'm from altitude. And I don't think that that discounts people who really like training at altitude or that there's not a place for that. But I definitely think there's a big place for skiing at sea level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what have you learned from say Pat O'Brien or that system, you know, the Stratton system that's helped you out? Yeah. I think some of it honestly is our women's team is so awesome. <laughs> and, you know, you're training day in and day out with some of the best skiers in the world. And so the confidence that you get from that is really helpful when then you're going to World Cups. <laughs> and you're like, well, yeah, there's more people at this level, but I already ski with people at this level. Like, And so that's part of it is like we have a really awesome training group that I appreciate and love being a part of. And then, yeah, I mean, Pat has been awesome in some – Technical aspects, I think that one of the big reasons why I ended up on the team and why Pat and I clicked was he was in Lottie two years ago when I like almost qualified in my first World Cup and had like a crazy fast first half of it or whatever. Um, and he sort of, he's a big proponent of like, you got to ski like yourself and, you know, it's already there. We just have to, it's like 1% of things where it's a lot of it's like getting to ski the race, the courses and getting to have, you know, confidence in your warm up and all this stuff where all of a sudden, like you don't have to ski like somebody else or completely change everything to make it. And I think that was super inspiring to me, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> what does that mean to you? Like ski like yourself? Like when you think about like how Kelsey Finney, it's always weird when weird when people <laughs> refer to themselves in the third person, but you know, like, what does it mean to ski like yourself for you? What does that mean? If that makes sense from your perception? Yeah. I mean, I have a really fast start and a lot of times I have to pace myself <laughs> in sprints, but I've been trying to work on like yeah, maximizing those sort of natural talents that I have. So getting up to speed quickly and then being able to settle in. And um, some of it's just skiing technically like myself. Like I can, I've learned so much from following Sophie. <laughs> you know, Sophie's a beautiful skate skier and um, it's great to learn that. But at a certain point, you have to take all that information and kind of see like, well, what works for my body and what's going to make me the fastest and have confidence in that. And so, yeah. And cause at the end of the day, like, especially in a qualifier and individual start, like you are out there by yourself, <laughs> you know, you don't get to just tack on to somebody and follow their exact pacing or rhythm or whatever. I do have maybe one more question, but about skiing, but yeah, anything that you're like, yeah, I want to talk about. No, this you can ask me whatever. I mean, I'm Yeah. You know, I knew, th I know the criteria for say us ski team criteria has been out for at least a year, you know, the year, the year of birth world rank, yeah. uh, paradigm for lack of a better word, I suppose. Right. But it's all, it, it, not all, there are some performance benchmarks, but those benchmarks 
require, um, you know, being at junior worlds or U23s or being on the world cup. Otherwise I do think it's all year of birth, year of birth world rank, if I'm not mistaken. Well, for the, for the B team, except for top 10 at U23s, it was all year of birth world rank for the A team and D team. They did have some performance based routes as well, like specific result-based routes slash world cup, like red group stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. For A team. Right. Right. So I'm curious, like, how does that, you know, just how does that play in your perspective now? Like, you know, time ticks, you gotta, you don't have to, but you know, one might tend to kind of be looking at the world rank listings or the fist point listings that come out (laughs) periodically. Um, yeah, just like, how is that impacting you in terms of, you know, maintaining focus on the here and now and kind of thinking about, okay, my objective is, you know, I'm, I'm just making the assumption, you know, making world champs, the Olympics, us ski team nomination. Again, if those are not your objectives, I totally get (laughs) it, but I'm just throwing those out there. Like, how does this criteria, how do you navigate that now? Right. I mean, yeah, this year, a huge goal of mine was to make the US ski team at the end of the year. And I think it's not, it's not necessarily that there's a massive distinction between being named and not named, but just that that felt like a, you know, a step forward in resources and sponsorship availability. And, um, you know, it's also indicative of how you're skiing. So that was definitely a goal of mine this year. And I, I don't think I knew, I think I realized the world rank thing in January. I hadn't really looked at it because I was on, I was like ranked 54th or whatever. And you had to be top 60 for my age group. Um, so I was like, Oh baby, <laughs> I'm in the mix right now. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I don't know how it, it's a tough thing. I mean, it makes sense to some degree to make it more objective. And it's nice that there is an objective route, whereas maybe in the past it was a little more discretion-based and kind of a a lot of people at the end of the season were like, I don't really know like where I stand. Um, So it is nice that if you're under that threshold, you're like, all right, I know what's going on here. Um, But for myself and a few other people who were like pretty – much just out. It was, a, uh, it was definitely a tough, tough thing to have that be a sort of specific cutoff. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it changes much again. Like, I mean, I love my club team. I love SMST too. It doesn't change that much in the day in and day out of my goals in life as a skier and like I love Pat (laughs) as my coach so I'm lucky in that but um yeah it is interesting and I don't know it's not like I have some idea of what would be better but it is a it like fist points are tricky because sometimes I feel like they're just so representative of where you're at and other times um you know for example I got like horrific food poisoning in China. I went to do that uh, 
tour the city sprints in China. And those ended up being like incredible fist point opportunity races. And I couldn't take advantage because I got super sick. But um, in some ways those, but those also probably shouldn't have gotten me on the U.S. ski team, if that makes sense. Like that's not like me chasing fist points there. Then that's not why I went, but it would have been weird to make the U.S. team off of those as opposed to like off of my World Cup results or whatever. You have started a podcast. Why don't you tell tell us a little bit about what you're up to and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. So my dad has Parkinson's disease and he was diagnosed when I was about five years old. So it's something that we've he's lived with and we've lived with as a family for almost my entire life. And due to his status as, you know, um, a well-known person, particularly in the cycling world, but also in the Boulder, Colorado community, he decided, or my parents decided to start a foundation for Parkinson's um, a few years after he was diagnosed. And the idea was, you know, there's like the Michael J. Fox Foundation and the Parkinson's Foundation out there doing a lot to find a cure and funding a lot of research to that end. But for people who are recently diagnosed or living with it day to day, there wasn't, especially 20 years ago, there wasn't much information on what is this and like, what are my options and how do I live well with it? Especially like my dad was 40. So, you know, how do I live more than potentially more than half of my life with this disease? And you know, have a good life. So they started the Davis Finney Foundation, um, which does fund some research, particularly towards exercises, impacts on cycling being sort of the only thing proven to slow down the disease, which is cool. But um, yeah, and then it's also sort of a lot of funding goes towards community events. So they do these things called victory summits where there's a bunch of speakers and information and maybe a bike ride and it's really community oriented and information oriented. Um, and I, my senior year at Middlebury, I had qualified for under, under 23 world champs in Romania. And I also wanted to go to NCAs <laughs> and I was going to miss quite a bit of school. And my advisor, basically, we decided that for my senior project, instead of doing more of a traditional research-based senior project, I studied neuroscience in school, I could do a podcast um, about Parkinson's. So I interviewed this awesome doctor, Dr. Benzie Kluger, who worked at... uh, the UC Denver hospital um, facilities out here. And we talked about this kind of not regularly talked about side of Parkinson's, which is REM sleep behavior disorder, which is um, a disorder that can be kind of a precursor to Parkinson's and has to do with acting out your dreams. Um, And so that was where I sort of, I learned how to make podcasts and thought it was a cool medium. And, uh, and I ended up giving it to my dad's foundation and it became really popular. Um, a number of people reached out saying that, 
you know, thanking me for making it and, uh, which was cool, <laughs> like very, a very profound experience for sure to have. And, um, so for that, the first two years, I just made like a couple kind of random in-depth podcasts when I would find a researcher or doctor who I could talk to. So I talked to this awesome researcher out at Tufts who knows about facial masking, which is like another side of Parkinson's people don't talk about. Um, and those were just kind of blogs that had audio content associated with them. So I would make like infographics and blogs and then make like a 30 minute to an hour long podcast. And then this last year I created a season, like a standalone 10 episode podcast season that was geared towards if you were just diagnosed with Parkinson's or someone in your life was, what would like, what would be nice to know right away? So it's kind of started out with the neuroscience of Parkinson's, which I <laughs> explained by myself on the podcast. And then um, I talked to a woman who had been living with Parkinson's for over 15 years. I talked to my mom about being a care partner. Um, I talked to... How was that conversation? Yeah, it was cool. I mean, my mom's amazing. Yeah, she, yeah. Um, and she gives a lot of care partners talks, but yeah, it was cool that we were able to sit down and talk super openly with each other about it. Um, I think it was really helpful and informative and a lot of times care partners and families are so impacted by any disease and they're kind of not given the attention and resources that they need as well. So I think that's an important gap to fill so that people feel more, yeah, like they have a community too and have more information and yeah. Okay. So here's a question. I don't want, I, I'm going to ask it and I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if I should ask this, but okay. <laughs> I know I, I, this is coming from a, a place, a good place. It's not like I'm trying, but I'm, but I, and I don't like wish there's no Schadenfreude. Like I don't wish any ill will on anyone, but I am kind of curious, like in what way is your dad's disease a blessing for all of you? If that makes sense. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think, I mean, my family is super close. We have been sent, I mean, particularly since his diagnosis. Um, my dad was working in television before that and commentating and um, was on the road a lot. And so, I mean, I grew up with my parents being like around a lot, which is, I realize, a very unique situation to have. Um, and like we ended up moving to Italy when I was a kid, kind of because of my dad's Parkinson's to, uh, we lived there for three years to kind of slow down our pace of life. And my parents really wanted Taylor and I to learn a second language. So there are a lot of, a lot of blessings that have come out. I mean, I know my dad, like some of his greatest meaning that he's found in his life is through working with other people with Parkinson's and being a voice in that community and feeling like he can really help people. So, I mean, I wouldn't wish the disease on anyone, but everyone I've met with Parkinson's, they're like the kindest, sweetest people um, that 
are so like brave and resilient in the face of a lifelong illness. So how, how is your dad? How is he? Yeah. He's doing well. Um, okay. Yeah. He's at a spin class for Parkinson's right now, actually, <laughs> which I so went to last week, which was awesome. <laughs> yeah. How'd that go for you? Like, is it, is it pretty brutal? Yeah, it was good. I mean, so some of the, the protocol they follow is that it has to be kind of a forced or faster RPM. So like the faster spinning helps with the disease. Like you can't just be sort of slow exercise. Um, and so people can change like the resistance based on what they want, but so it's not like you have to be cranking out massive Watts, but, um, it is supposed to be pretty fast, but you know, they're playing music and sometimes they sing along and then they do their little, they do like the RPM inter intervals, like to the chorus of the songs. It was great. <laughs> I mean, I, oh, cool. it was cool. hard. It was like a full on workout for me. So I was into it. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Are you going to continue with the second season with that podcast or where are you going to go from here? Um, yeah, that's what I'm kind of playing with right now. I, one of my biggest regrets, I suppose you could say about the first season was just that I felt like it was maybe a little rushed and I was doing so much on the road and so many like over the phone interviews that didn't necessarily have the best audio quality that I, um, it was such great content, but it wasn't necessarily the best production or audio quality that it could have been. So I'm hoping to do more of the interviews in person moving forward. So that's kind of why I've been upgrading my setup, but which this shoulder injury and being home longer is a blessing in disguise for having some more time to do that. But, um, I, yeah, I'm hoping one of, well, as kind of a teaser, what I'd like to do is talk to more people living with Parkinson's. I think that, having a disease that takes over so many of your physical attributes, I guess you could say, or changes the way that you are perceived by others, it kind of becomes, it kind of becomes you, I guess, like people will just ask how you're doing in terms of your Parkinson's or, you know, it, it's just such an obvious, it can be such an obvious disease that it's hard to see past that and be like, wow, this person is actually incredible. <laughs> and so I would like to have more conversations within the community of people living with Parkinson's about like who they are <laughs> and what they love to do and um, building that voice back up. Um, so that's what I'm hoping to do some more like interview based long form podcast. So we'll see. And, you know, I guess, uh, I'm curious, how are you a different athlete from having grown up in an environment where you've seen someone who was totally reliant on their body being, fi you know, like the, a Ferrari, you know, nothing can be <laughs> misfiring, right? It's all fine tuned. Um, and watched, you know, a parent kind of walks, go through this process of, uh, you know, relearning how to use their body and how to function and having different, different, not lower expectations, but different expectations when it comes to like performance, um, or doing things, you know, I, I'm just curious, how does that inform your athleticism? 
That's a good question. I think, well, Taylor and I both talked about this on on the days when nothing's going right and it feels terrible and maybe you're embarrassed. Like that's the worst is if you feel embarrassed in yourself or something during the race, you're like, Oh gosh. Um, I think in those moments to have that sort of higher or outside perspective of like, I'm so lucky that I get to do this (laughs) and that I can even like be here and race and move my body in this way. Um, allows you or allows me to get through more of those downs, I guess, with some more perspective. (laughs) And, um, yeah, like my dad would love to be out there racing (laughs) on skis or on his bike or whatever. I mean, not right now, but just, you know what I mean? Like respecting that a little bit too. Like, yeah, we're so lucky that we get to do this. (laughs) And that doesn't have to be in racing. I mean, it's even just in life, like I'll, even during a hard training session or if you don't want to get out the door, just be like, well, I mean, yeah, this is still awesome. Like I get to move my body and be outside. I can't complain too much. I know, but isn't it like the human condition to complain? Yeah. Right? Like we have to remind ourselves, we have to remind ourselves like, you know, oh Yeah right. We have this going on or this person's experiencing that. Yeah. It is an interesting human dilemma. I feel like as I, yeah. Right. You know, what checks me and was, right. what doesn't check me. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that I think having any sort of perspective, um, with the luck of being an athlete. And I don't even mean that as a professional competing athlete, but just being an athlete is like, I think sometimes we try to do some sort of hierarchy with like, especially Nordic skiers, like I work the hardest or I like, it almost becomes like a bragging about how hard it is or how much you don't want to do it or something, but you still did. And at the end of the day, like anyone at any level, like it's so healthy and good to just be outside and move your body that like, there's no reason to try to like put it on a hierarchy or like think that you're better than anyone or just like, and I think that's a nice reminder as well. I'm making the assumption that certain athletes already know that they're going to be starting period one, but do you not know, or do you know that? I don't know yet. I mean, I think there's a good chance, but I don't know. And I also have to see what happens with this old shoulder of mine for the strategy, (laughs) but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Be careful. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks again. And, um, I'll keep you posted. This will be out sooner rather than later. Yeah, no worries. Great to chat and uh, have a good day. Thanks for listening.